Turning in the scriptures to the Old Testament, the book of Psalms, Psalm 44. Psalm 44 begins with the caption, To the chief musician, a contemplation of the sons of Korah. We have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us the deeds you did in their days, in days of old, that you did in their days, in days of old. You drove out the nations with your hand, but you planted them, you afflicted the peoples and cast them out. For they did not gain possession of the land by their sword, nor did their arm save them. But it was your right hand and your arm and the light of your countenance, because you favored them. You are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Through you we will push down our enemies. Through your name we will trample those who rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, nor shall my sword save me. But you have saved us from our enemies. You have put to shame those who hated us. In God we boast all day long and praise your name forever. Selah. But you have cast us off and put us to shame. And you do not go out with our armies. You make us turn back from the enemy. And those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. You have given us up like sheep tended for food, intended for food. You have scattered us among the nations. You sell your people for next to nothing and are not enriched by selling them. You make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and derision to those around us. You make us a byword among the nations, a shaking of the head among the peoples. My dishonor is continually before me, and the shame of my face has covered me, because the voice of him who reproaches and reviles because of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you, nor have we dealt falsely with your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way, but you have severely broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or <coughs> stretched our hands out to a foreign God, would not God search this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Awake! Why do you sleep, O Lord? Arise! Do not cast us off forever. Why do you hide your face and forget the affliction of the oppressed and forget the affliction and our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our body clings to the ground. Arise for our help, and redeem us for your mercy's sake. When God Hides The Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America is a joke.
not, I hope, to you, or at least to some of you, but to other evangelical churches, perhaps to some Reformed and Presbyterian churches, and certainly to our contemporary society, we are a joke. Like the ridicule cast at the nation of Israel here in Psalm 44, summarized by the sons of Korah, so little good is thought about the RPCNA by our neighbors. With heavenly wisdom, the sons of Korah do not begin a public relations campaign to better their image. They understood that the principal obstacle was not men, but the Lord God. He apparently was hiding, but why? What should you do? No, what must you do when God hides? Since we lack a revised Psalter in the New Testament, it is therefore, the Psalter is therefore to be received as adequate for the New Testament age and as expressive of both the Old and New Testament ages. While our citizenship in the kingdom of God is surely greater in privilege, yet it is not consummated and the continuity and similarities between the covenant ages remains. Is a contrast to what we've just read in Psalm 44. The charismatic movement illustrates the childish impatience of the church and childish tantrums and childish speech. The pragmatic orientation of contemporary churches emphasizes methodology as if strategy and programs and actions will maintain the church. Dominant around us in churches is the variety package of self-expression and the abandonment of the doctrines of the Psalms with the replacement of the sentimentality of hymns. We are in contrast to the organized informality and entertainment-oriented presentations by our simple Bible-centered worship. Psalm 44 is placed in the second book of the Psalter. The second book of the Psalter is Psalms 42 through 72. That suggests a date that precedes the Maccabean era of Antiochus, the pre-exile period of Hezekiah, and the Davidic period. This psalm assumes that God is not slack concerning his promises. The song is crafted for the voices of those saved by grace, the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah were separated from their father's punishment for his rebellion when the earth swallowed Korah alive. Numbers 16. To them and to others, this psalm is full of teaching. Hence the title Miscal, which the New King James translates as contemplation. Matthew Henry notes, some observe that most of the psalms that are entitled Miscal, Psalms of Instruction, are sorrowful psalms, 
For afflictions give instruction, and sorrow's spirit opens the ear to them. Psalm 44 is a great meditation of the people of God on the question, Why do the righteous suffer? It begins with the celebration of the goodness of God in the past. It moves to a bewilderment of the afflictions in the present. It concludes with a petition for relief in the future. And so our outline is, recall God's preserving distinction in the past, verses 1 through 8. Restate God's perplexing distance in the present, verses 9 through 22. And request God's powerful deliverance in the future, verses 23 through 26. The first section, recall God's preserving distinctions in the past. I want to review with you what has come from this passage, some of the glories of redemption, and then broaden out to see throughout church history the historic glories, redemptive glories. The psalm calls, recalls the conquest of the promised land under Joshua. The Bible's message is rooted in history. O. Palmer Roberts notes that this is the same way that we are to have our faith strengthened. He writes, Faith in the future must be awakened on the basis of God's great works in the past. The psalmist resolves to rely on God alone. William Palmer comments, Every genuine child of God achieves victories more worthy of celebration than those of David when he defeated the lion, the bear, and the giant. The psalmist resolves that God must receive all the glory. Verse 8. God reigns over the nations. He sits upon the throne. In God we boast all the day long and praise your name forever. Notice something else in verse 1. The works and the victories of God are told to him. He says, our fathers told us the past victories of God that come to mind were told to him by a former generation. Their faith in God was the result of their spiritual fathers and mothers speaking to them and passing on the redemptive history of God. Be careful as you live in the present as if the past doesn't matter, as if the testimony of our spiritual fathers and mothers doesn't make a difference. Don't despise and minimize what your parents teach you. In verse 3, he tells us, For they did not gain possession of the land by their sword, nor did their arms save them. It is very clear that the Lord has done these things in the past, these glorious works of redemption. They did not do it. It was not their sword, their strength, their might. God accomplished it. What the psalmist is trying to remember in the midst of hardship is the great God who has done these great acts throughout all of history. Redemptive glories. Broadening now to historic glories. As we review biblical history and later church history, we should praise God for the regular flowing of the Holy Spirit as he causes the quiet, usual, 
one-at-a-time conversions, as well as the momentous flooding of the Spirit, causing the climactic, unusual, and sweeping conversion of multitudes. An example, the Church of Scotland in the 17th century has been singular among the churches. In other nations, the Lord thought it enough to convert a few in the city, village, or family to himself, leaving the greater part in darkness, as it was in France and Poland. Or the magistrates in a greater part of the people, as it was in Germany, Holland, and England. In Scotland, the whole nation was converted. Within ten years after popery was discharged in Scotland, there were not ten persons of quality to be found who did not confess the true Reformed religion and seal it in the Solemn League and Covenant of 1643. However, there is a mystery in God's dealings with humanity. A brief survey of history shows this. One of the great centers of Christianity in the ancient world was the country we know as Turkey. Today, there are hardly any Christians. Is it because these people were so unfaithful? Or is there some mystery that we do not yet understand? For a time in the 16th century, millions were drawn to the Reformation in France. After only a few decades, the French Reformed Church began to fade, not because of some sin, but because of some mystery in the divine administration of providence. The church in Scotland was so powerful in its witness in the 16th and 17th century it was renewed in vigor in the 19th century, but today is impoverished and weakened. Look at the church in America with such remarkable roots and evidence of blessings. Today, our compromise of doctrine and holiness is perhaps evidence that we are being abandoned by the Spirit of God. However, there are congregations with people who love the Lord there are pastors who are faithful to the word, and yet these congregations seem only to shrink. Some congregations seem to be doing well, but are visited by afflictions. Sometimes the most faithful are the most afflicted. For example, there is an Orthodox Presbyterian Church pastor in San Francisco who took a public stand against homosexuality. For two years, every day, he received phone calls with death threats. Recall God's preserving distinctions in the past. Second portion of the psalm is restate God's perplexing distance in the present. I want to show you two portions of this section. The suffering of the innocent and the innocence of the suffering. The suffering of the innocent, verses 9 through 16. What is not lacking is a market strategy and demographic studies. What is not lacking is a revitalization committee, a five-year plan, and specialized recruiters. 
Rather, it is God withholding his blessing. They are defeated, routed, spoiled, slaughtered, enslaved. The psalmist laments, I do not understand what is happening. What I have heard of how you delivered in the past is not what I am experiencing in the present. I am experiencing defeat and misery. I do not know how to make sense of this. The psalmist makes six laments that he organizes in three couplets. The first lament, verses 9 and 10, grieves over military defeat. He says, you have gone out. You haven't gone out with our armies. The enemies have gotten spoiled from us. We've been slaughtered like sheep. Second lament in verses 11 and 12 mourns that they have been dispatched. They have been slaughtered. They have been taken away as prisoners. He says, you sold us for a trifle. You sold us for a few dollars. We seem to have no value to you. John Calvin writes, If, therefore, we would expect a remedy from God for our miseries, we must believe that they fall befall us not by fortune or by mere chance, but they are inflicted upon us properly by his hand. Afflictions, not by chance, but properly by his hand. The third couplet, verses 13 through 16, laments the disgrace and the shame heaped upon God's people. Look what they have done. The people have made us an object of ridicule and scorn. We are a joke. They're laughing at us. We are humiliated, disgraced, and covered with shame. What he is saying is, we understand that you are powerful, that you are a redeeming God, that you are a God who has provided for your people throughout the ages, but look at what has happened now. Your people throughout generations, it seems to be a contradiction. Even so, in your faith and mine, sometimes our creed collides with our experience. How should we respond? I'll come to that in a moment. After the suffering of the innocents, then there is the innocence of the sufferers, verses 17 through 22. The psalmist claims to be innocent, verses 17 and 18. This is not a claim to be sinless. Rather, his generation was practicing true religion. They did not serve idols. They were faithful to the covenant God. John Calvin comments, It is, however, to be observed that the faithful Although in their adversities they do not perceive any, obli- any obvious reason for being so dealt with, yet they, they rest assured of this and regard it as a fixed principle that God has some good reason for treating them so severely. The psalmist supports his claim of innocence by noting that God has not denounced them for their sins, verses 20. Through 22, there is no apparent reason that we can discern for this suffering that we are experiencing. The psalmist asserts, we have been faithful to the covenant, Lord God. You have not brought us blessing, you, you have brought us disaster. Here in this second section, he restates God's perplexing distance in the present. 
The final section, request God's powerful deliverance in the future, verses 23 through 26. We have a contrast between the appearance and the reality. First, the appearance. The psalmist is asking, what is going on here? You said that if we were faithful to your covenant that you would bless us. If we were faithless to your covenant, you would curse us. But we have been faithful and yet have been cursed. Our inclination is to explain to this people that they had not been as faithful as they thought they had been. They are not suffering for righteousness. They are suffering for their sin. However, these people have been faithful to God's covenant, yet are cursed. Verse 23, the psalmist cries out, Awake! Why do you sleep, O Lord? One of the impressive features of the psalmist is the boldness with which prayers are offered to the Lord. Awake! Why do you sleep, O Lord? The psalmist is saying that the Lord is in danger of becoming like Baal. Baal's prophets prayed to him to answer by fire on the sacrifice they'd prepared at Mount Carmel. They were taunted by the prophet Elijah, who suggested that Baal might be busy, or on a journey, or asleep. And they must be awakened. Is the living God sleeping? Psalm 121 verse 4 asserts, Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The frustration of the people of God is so intense that they do not understand how being faithful they are apparently abandoned by God. This is an intense representation of the mystery of divine providence in history. There are times that we suffer even though we are righteous. The Pharisees didn't believe that. Whenever they saw someone suffering, the cripple, the lame, the blind, the deaf, the diseased, they muttered to themselves, Praise be to God who is a reliable judge. They thought that sin brought sickness. But that is not the full revelation of Scripture. It is a mystery that even the righteous suffer. What is apparent? Now the reality. Psalm 44 makes three important points about providence, progress, and purpose. First, providence. The psalmist ascribes his situation to God. All events come from God. The psalmist refutes two false ways of trying to preserve God from blame for the suffering of the innocent. One approach is by Rabbi Harold Kushner in his book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Kushner asserts that God is not able to control all of life. God is not the cause of our troubles. He lacks power. A second approach 
It is by evangelical Christians who promote open theism that God lacks, lacks power. What God lacks is not power, but knowledge. God does not know the future because the future is caused by our free will choices. Since our free will has not yet caused the future, God cannot know the future. God is not responsible for what happens because God does not know the future. James Boyce answers, Although it makes the situation puzzling, the realization that God is in control is still both the proper way to approach our problems and the only possible way to find a solution to them. The secularist has nowhere to turn. Not only does he not have an answer, he does not have a way of finding one. The first point from this psalm is all events come from God, providence. The second point that he makes is progress. The psalmist asserts that suffering is not always punishment for sin. God does chastise his people for their sins. And if that is your situation, you know for what you are being punished. Remember, all sin deserves God's just wrath. The real mystery is not why the Holy God allows suffering, but why do good things happen to bad people? The question we ought to ask is, how may I use the suffering to bring glory to God? God might use suffering to strengthen your faith, to bring others to saving faith. A pastor was visiting a young mother in the hospital. She had two young children. She was dying of cancer. She was full of faith. She died bravely. Afterwards, someone asked him, I suppose you told her that God gave her that cancer. He replied, No, that is not what I said, but I will tell you what she said. She said that she could not have faced this ordeal if she did not know that it came from the hand of God and served some purpose. The way we react to providence affects those around us. It's remarkable that a life of this suffering can say that it comes from my kind father. When the young mother died, there were many in the hospital who said, we have never seen such a death. What courage, what faith, what glory to Christ in such living and in such dying. The second point is that the good God is what the good God is doing in your suffering, the progress. Third, purpose. The psalmist testifies that her suffering is for God's sake. The psalmist's life is shaped by God's will and for God's sake. In Romans 8, Paul addresses the persecution of Christians. And then he cites Psalm 44, verse 22. For your sake, we are being killed all day long. God has ordained us to join Christ in suffering. 
we are drawn closer to Christ by suffering with him and for the gospel. The third point is that suffering is for God's sake. It has a purpose. Psalm 44 also shows us three ways in which we conquer while we suffer with Christ and for his sake. First, like the psalmist, we are to call upon the Lord in prayer for deliverance. John Calvin writes, Let us then bear in mind that it is a true test of our piety when, being plunged into the lowest depths of disaster, we lift our eyes, our hopes, and our prayers to God alone. The Lord is with you, even though you do not feel his immediate presence, his intimate presence. Second, we conquer in afflictions by holding firm to our faith, being loyal to God. Third, we conquer by prizing Jesus Christ himself above all the pleasures and treasures of the world. Knowing Jesus as your Savior is more than enough to conquer. Request God's powerful deliverance in the future. We are inclined to wonder about providence when we suffer as righteous people. The answer is found in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who was truly righteous suffered. He suffered a judgment that was not his. He suffered willingly and freely that he might redeem his covenant people. The attitude in Christ was that he was willing to embrace suffering as a righteous one for the sake of God's great plan of redemption. We are not redeemers in the way that Jesus Christ is the redeemer. But our suffering in the world of misery is a suffering in which the gospel continues to be preached and to gather the elect into the church. The day that our suffering ends is the day that the preaching of the gospel ends and our Savior returns to restore heaven and earth. That day the saved and the lost are separated. Our suffering is redemptive, not to propitiate the wrath of God, but to participate in the plan that God has to save his own. If you are suffering, if there is a mystery why the righteous seem to be afflicted, remember what Peter exhorted, 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when, he, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. The mystery of God's providence requires us to live by faith, not by sight. We must trust the purpose of God, even when we do not understand it. Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9 reminds us, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God exercises his sovereignty over the church by saying, Trust me. 
rely upon me. In our experiences, there are not many we can trust. Politicians can't be trusted. Too often, Christian friends cannot be trusted. Life is full of disappointments from broken trust. But Jesus says to us, you can trust me. You can rely upon me. The pattern in Scripture is that in times of difficulty, remember what God has done for you. Notice the opening verses of Psalm 44. The psalmist recalls the days of old. Remember what God has always done for his people. We strengthen trust by remembering what Jesus has done by his obedient life, his accursed death, his triumphant resurrection, his glorious ascension. We cultivate trust by looking back and by looking forward. Psalm 44 is marked by hope. God who has saved us in the past will save us in the days to come. John Calvin recommended meditating on the future life. Take time to think about heaven. Think about the new heavens and the new earth. Paul writes in Romans 8, 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. In 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 and 18, he writes, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. When we remember the past and hope in the future, we can trust in the present, even though we do not understand the mystery of God's sovereignty. We can rely upon him. We can trust that our good and gracious sovereign will do all things well for his people. Psalm 44 is descriptive of the current church ridiculed by contemporary society as a joke. Psalm 44 is prayed and sung with all sincerity by those who would be Reformed and Presbyterian when God hides. Our merciful God and Father, prepare us for the blessings that you intend and deliver us from the cursings that we deserve. Lord, remind us that no matter what situation we find ourselves in, if today we are experiencing afflictions, or it may come in the days ahead, remind us that you are faithful, you are good, you are loving, you are wise, you are for us. Help us to hear the sound of the gospel in the valley of despair. In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.